Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by senior pastor Clint Shambler. He is preaching on the book of Esther. Good morning, everybody. My name is Clint. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We get to continue on in a series that we've dubbed Difficulty with Christianity. And here's uh, the point of this sermon series. We're trying to find aspects of the Bible. It's not hard to do so, by the way. Uh, They're difficult for us. It's challenging for us. It, It hits in us a little bit. We're gearing up for Easter, which is the most scandalous of all scandals of the entirety of the Bible. A perfect and loving and just God came to earth, lowered himself, died for us, and rose from the dead. Uh, It's beyond scandalous. And so to prepare for that, what we've been doing is we've been going through difficult passages, different aspects of the Bible that may confront some of our sensibilities, some of our um, uh, maybe, you know, 2023 Americanized Western thoughts and place it within the context of Scripture and come to see, come to understand Maybe, just maybe, here's the hope from the sermon and hope from the series. Maybe, just maybe, my presumptions about the scriptures are incorrect. And maybe the confrontation that Christ brings to my doorstep, brings to my heart, is that his ways are above my ways. So to do that, to understand that, to to get ready for that, we come to Esther. Now, here's the problem that Esther presents you and I. And there's many problems that Esther presents you and I. Um, By the way, is Esther in the house today? I feel so bad for her right now that I keep on saying you're presenting us problems, Esther. Esther, this isn't a you problem, okay? This is not, I promise. Um, So if you keep hearing that, I don't want you to think, like, have that repeated in your mind over and over and over. Get rid of that. The biblical Esther, the story of Esther, the narration of the historical account presents us problems. And here's why. Two things that the book shows us that I want to challenge you with today. One... How control, how much in control is God in my life? A question I want you to ask, the question I want you to present yourself with, the question I want you to wrestle with is this. Where is God moving in my life? Where is he sovereign? Where is he control? Is he in control? Is he present? And I'll give you a little hint. The entire book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned one time. It should present, it should show us, something should prepare us. Wait, what's happening? What's going on? Where is God? Are you currently asking yourself that in your life? Where is God? What is he doing? How is he active? That's the first question, the first problem that is presented to us. And the second problem is this. How do I, as a Christian, if you count yourself as a Christian, and one of the things I love, again, about COTB, Ministry in the Cities, again, we we have so many people that are questioning faith, new to faith or not of faith, and I want to just encourage you. Esther presents for us an opportunity a chance to ask difficult questions where skeptics are welcome with this. Because here's the second thing I want to present. If you count yourself as a Christian, if you count yourself as a Christ follower, Esther presents us with this second problem. The second problem is this. How do I, as a Christian, engage with the world around me? Uh, If you grew up in my era, um, thankfully, I think, um, Pastor Abe and myself were debating uh, lingo earlier this morning, like a phrase to use. Um, and we 
both kept on giving back and forth phrases that only he and I understood. And we're like, wow, we're dating ourselves right now. And I'm like, I know, we really are. I was bringing up JFK references, and I was like, no, nobody's going to remember that. Bay of Pigs is only in a history book. Like, Cuba Missile Crisis. You're like, oh, yeah, I learned that like four years ago. I'm like, oh, that's great. What we must understand, what I must understand, if you grew up in an era like I did, there was this thing called the culture wars that were happening all across America and religion. And, and some of that is still residual, but not as much. So the second problem is this. First time in American history, less than 50% of people in America identify as Christian, self-identify as Christian, meaning it used to be assumed, meaning this, Christianity used to be in the power seat, no longer the case. You should be asking yourself, because of that switch, because of that flip, because of that inversion, how do we, as Christians, engage and interact with the culture around us? Esther tells us. So the first thing, is God present? Is God moving? Where is he moving? How do I feel his presence? How do I know that he's there? Secondly, how do I engage with a culture that is increasingly at odds with my faith? Increasingly not in agreement. Increasingly becoming more and more hostile towards the thing that I have to say about God and the Bible and his word and his son. Answer is this. Karen Jobes, a theologian and commentator, says this. She says, the great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. Jesus' last words were, go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then, ironically, he left. Nevertheless, our Lord is omnipotently present even when he is most conspicuously absent. We will face challenges in this world, church. We will, face, we will face challenges as we live, as we walk, as we engage with friends, coworkers, neighbors, family, loved ones. Esther helps us see that even when we don't think God is present, God is always present. And even when we don't know how to engage in culture, he engages with the culture always and forever. So, I want to talk through three things. One, we'll talk about the difficulty of culture's grip on us. Secondly, I want to talk about God's presence. I want to talk about how he's always there, how he's always present, how he's always around us. And third, because of that, I want to give some applications. I want to tell you a solution. Karen Job's already said it, but I want to give you a solution and tell you why there's a problem with the solution. First, difficulty of culture's grips on us. Uh, one of the questions that Esther asks us is, um, how does Esther, how does, how does Mordecai, how does King Xerxes, how does this all play within an understanding of how we as Christians are supposed to engage in a world around us? And it's a question that I get a lot of mileage out on as a pastor. This one is asked by everybody. Every single person in the church will always ask, forever ask, how does my faith inform how I'm a citizen of America? Now, again, that question used to be, if you're an American citizen, you are a faith. That's how the answer was, was always supposed to be. No longer is the case. And some people bemoan that. Some people go, oh no, that's a, that's a loss. That's a horrible fact. Uh, can I gently encourage you? I praise God that's no longer the case. Here's why I praise God that's no longer the case. Uh, because of the times in abject revival across God's kingdom, it started when people stopped assuming faith and had to fight for faith of their own intrinsic value, not fight against people, but believe it themselves. When it's assumed, it's bad. I'll just simplify it. I could talk on and on about it. It's bad. 
when it's not assumed, oh, it's glorious. It's glorious. So I get a lot of mileage out of this question, and I want to talk about the culture that we see in Esther and then maybe some parallels to our lives. First, King Xerxes has, has power and wealth as his, as his god, as his idol, as his culture. He says at the beginning of the passage, uh, he brings his then wife uh, out and, and wants to parade her in front of all these people that he's invited to a party. He throws a party and he wants to basically say, here's my wealth, here's my glory, here's my power, here's my might. Look at how awesome I am. Conversely, Esther, as well as Vashti, uh, his, his previous wife and then his new wife, use their beauty and looks to get ahead in life. Now, church, we don't know anything like that, do we? That's certainly not, that that doesn't define America, does it? That doesn't define our world, does it? Of course it does. When we think a lot of times, I think think a lot of times we say, well, the Bible is very archaic and out of date. Really? (laughs) Because I think we use power, wealth, and and prestige to get along in life a great deal. And I think we use beauty and power and and our own intrinsic value, our own uh, sexuality to get ahead in life. Don't we? And if you say no, 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 uh, spend like 30 seconds on YouTube and you'll believe it. I know you already do. It's, it's very, very easy to understand. Now, here's the problem with this. There are two power dynamics. There's, there's beauty and sexuality and then there's wealth and might and prestige and position and title. And, and, and they're at, they, they come forefront in this cultural war that happens in Esther. It's not really a cultural war. It's more of a conflict. And what's weird about this is if you read the commentaries, if you go through all the commentaries... People have no clue what to do with the book of Esther. They have no idea. Do you know why they have no idea? Because here is, if I can, here is a a mode of understanding Esther that I don't think is useful. See, I read, uh, part of my study each week is I grab two ends of the spectrum, uh, uh, progressive and and, and ultra-conservative commentaries, and then I find one in the middle, and I, I find some people, and I read because it begs the question of what I'm trying to get across. And one of the things that I see within Esther is these two spectrums think Esther is an anti-hero. They can't stand Esther. They read Esther, and one side says, she's a horrible woman because she didn't stand up for her rights. See, if you look at the story of Esther, what has happened in the book is Vashti comes out, the king says, parade for me, woman. And she goes, no. And he goes, okay, you're out. And she gets kicked out. And the commentaries that I read on one half say, good for Vashti. Esther comes in and he says, you're beautiful. I think, I think you're hot. Come be my wife. And she goes, okay. And the commentaries go, she's a sellout. She's horrible. She's awful. And then I read the other commentaries that say, oh, Esther is a sellout. She's a loose moral woman. Because the reality of Esther, and here, please, you have to understand that you have to read this. You have to stare straight in the face of it and accept this. Do you know how Esther got her position as queen? Church, nobody likes saying this, so let me just say it for you. She slept her way to the top. And we say, no, 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 yes. There was a pageant that was put on in all the land. She came forward. She had a a, a counselor, somebody within the king's court, that said, here's what you are to do to get the king's eye. Here's here's how to dress yourself. Here's how to look more pretty. Here's how to do these things. Here's what he likes to catch his eye and then get invited in. And then it says, she spent the night with him. Now, friends, 
friends. This is not a... Uh, I remember when I was dating my wife, we, we had this idea of going out and hitting all the 24-hour spots in our city, like Denny's, 24-hour uh, fitness, and we were like going to stay up all night and do it. And so I'm telling her this. I'm like, hey, we should go out all night and, 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 and do this. And then she was like, okay, let's talk to my parents. And I went to the parents like, yeah, we're going to go out all night and do this. And the dad was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Where again will you be at 1 o'clock, at 2 o'clock, at 3 o'clock? I need times. I need dates. I need, you know what, get that receipt for me. <laughs> Keep that receipt. It says, now, by the way, really quick, we did actually go out and do the 24-hour thing. Just if there's any confusion on that. <laughs> Um, we went to, did we go to the mall? Wasn't the mall open 20? Yeah, we went to the mall and it was like, it was like a zombie movie. There was no one down. It was really weird. It, it was awesome. Um, we really did do that. The king and Esther did not. <laughs> she slept her way to the top. He found her beautiful and pleasing sexually. Now, here's the other commentators say she's a sellout because she's just a loose moral woman. And then the other commentaries that say she's not like Vasti and she's a sellout then say, but good, she has good sexual identity and she's using her body for what she wants. It vacillates all over the place. At one point, she's an anti-hero. At the other point, she's a hero. And commentaries don't know what to do with her. Because if you say, well, she's a loose moral woman, she's the hero of the story because she saves her people. And so you go, okay, and, and, and they're like saddened by it. And then they go, and, and then the other, the other group that says, well, she should have just been like Vashti and stood up for her rights. Well, then she wouldn't have been in position to free God's people. Okay, and then, so they just stop talking and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to answer it. I'm gonna give you the answer of what we should look at Esther here in a moment. But she slept her way to the top and we must say that. Don't run from it, church. Don't embrace it. Because it presents a problem for us. A problem that I'm, I'm ready to digest and discuss. Pastor Abe, a couple weeks ago, said that culture is the intrinsic value of somebody. Basically, when you wake up, you just know things that you know that you know. You don't have to be taught these things. It's an intrinsic value that you have. Um, and part of it you can't fight. Part of it you can't really come against. See, when we look at Esther and we look at the story, we think, here's what we do as Christians, of uh, people of faith. We try to moralize in black and white everything, right? So we look at Esther, and we say to ourselves, and, and we even look at the king's court, and we look at God's inclusion of this in his canon. Now, again, what had happened is there was a harem. There was concubines. King Xerxes, as well as other people, had hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines, Hundreds of sexual partners at a, at a moment's notice could come into the, the king's room and, and he would have his way. That's, that's what's happening here. That's what's being described here. And here's what we do. We try to make sense of that. And we try to say, this is the question, and if you're not asking this, you should be asking this. You should ask this question. You should say, Pastor, why does the Bible allow these men to have hundreds and hundreds of wives? Why does the Bible allow King David and King Solomon and King Xerxes? Why is this allowed? Why is this good? Now, you should be asking yourself that question. If you're not, I just posed it for you, so thanks for asking. It's now in your head. You should be asking because here's, here's the reality. Here's the point, and here's what Esther tells us about engaging with culture. Do you know how many times the Bible says you should have hundreds of concubines and it's good and pleasing to God? Not one time. Do you know what it does constantly in the Bible? It just describes things. 
It just says, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. Are harems good? No. Harems are bad. Are harems described in scripture? Yes, they are. So what do we do with that, pastor? Pastor, I, I, this, is, this is so weird to me that Esther is part of a harem. She a, starts off as one of hundreds. And here's, the, here's what could have happened to her along the way. The king says, my previous wife, and this isn't me saying, this is Xerxes, so if you clip this later on the live stream, I'm going to fight you. Here's what Xerxes says. Xerxes says, woman, get out. You've done nothing good for me. You've dis you, you disobeyed off with your head. Get out of here. I want, I want docile women in my harem. So he brings Esther in, and Esther is docile. She's, she goes with the flow. She uses her beauty, gets up in the ranks, and now he looks at her and says, ah, you're part of my harem. You're part of the group of women that I have now, and I get to parade you, and I get to show how, how awesome I am. And the reality that we have a lot in life, the reality that we have a lot with our difficulty is we think, well, if it's in the Bible, it must be good. Friends, it's in the Bible to show us something. And here's where I want to talk about our engagement with culture. There are certain things that you and I will never, ever, ever, ever get rid of in our system, in our culture, in our understanding. It's impossible to. Every time somebody says, well, I want to be a good cultural Christian, it's kind of like saying, this is one of my favorite questions that people ask. Like, Pastor, I want to, I want to do a good job dating biblically. How do I date biblically? Okay, give a thousand sheep to your, to your partner's family, go into a room with a veil on, then come out and go to work the next day. And they're like, no, I said, how do I date biblically? I'm like, I just described it to you. <laughs> There's, there's no such thing as dating in the Bible. Dating is engagement is a Western concept that we've instituted into the world. A good one. I, I'm not saying it's bad. But if you ask me, how do I date biblically? I'm going to tell you, pay a thousand sheep. And you're going to say, I don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, then don't do that. See, there's precepts in the scriptures that tell us as our culture, in our society, there are certain things that just can't go away. You were born into your culture and you have certain things that are part of who you are. And the Bible says, that's okay. I'll work with this. I'll use this. See, uh, Esau Macaulay in his book, Reading While Black, talks about constantly, as a, as a black man growing up, he read the scriptures and he came away with it with incredible, incredible things. He, was, he had a view, had an understanding, had a paradigm shift that were different from my upbringing. And in the same book, what he said is this. What he says is, that's not to say my view as a, as a black pastor is better than your view. It just is a view to understand the scriptures. Now, we could say, hold on, pastor. Is, doesn't that mean our culture informs scripture? No. No, it doesn't. It actually means that our, our culture, our perspective, our upbringing tells us how, it, it forces us to interact with scripture in a particular way. That's what it does. And it, it shows us, it tells us certain ways that we must conform to Scripture. And then there's certain ways where it doesn't speak on and on. It says, have fun. Um, how, many, how many of y'all grew up in churches where uh, the worship style was hotly debated? Because I grew up in that way. Uh, I remember one time I, I led uh, worship for our uh, church one day, and I came and practiced Thursday night, 8 p.m., 
uh, and I had a hat on. I know. I'm just the worst sinner of them all. <laughs> I walk in, and sure enough, somebody tells me, son, you're in the Lord's house. Take that hat off. I was like, oh, okay. And then I had, I had my, my high school uh, uh, band teacher. He was the drummer, and, and he was going to town on the drum set, which a drum set. It had to be behind the glass partition, you know, to not make too much noise. And he was just wailing on it, and I start wailing on my guitar, and for about five minutes, we're just messing around, and I got to talking to again after that. I said, Clint, that's not worshipful. I said, it's 8 p.m. on a Thursday. We're practicing. There's, cult <laughs> There's cultural problems. I didn't say that, by the way. I kept that in my head. <laughs> There's cultural issues that the Bible doesn't talk about. There's cultural issues that it just describes and says this is. Now, why is Esau Macaulay's, why is the dating example, why is Esther's understanding for us so good? I want to tell you uh, what, uh, there's this author, Watkins, he has this book. Uh, in the book, uh, it, it's, it's talking about uh, biblical theory, how to understand the Bible as a whole, how to, how to read through the entirety of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, different genres. And one of the things he says is, we do a horrible job when we try to villainize or idolize people in scripture. How many times do you do this where you say to yourself, well, I'm a little like Paul. You mean the second greatest evangelist ever to live? Yes. No, you're not. <laughs> I can guarantee you. We say, well, I'm a little like this person. And we try to put ourselves in the Bible because we think of them. We either villainize them or we make them heroes. We idolize them. We raise them up. And what Watkins tells us, what Esau Macaulay's telling us, what Esther is telling us is don't do that. What you should simply say about Esther is you should describe her. She slept her way to the top. I don't know what to do with that because isn't that bad? Isn't that sinful? Yes. Well, then why is it in Scripture? Because aren't you and I just the same? Don't you and I do the exact same things with our position, with our power, with our wealth, with our beauty, with our looks, with our skills? How many of us want to promote how good we are at something, how much we have, how much we've acclaimed or how good we are naturally, and we want to promote that to the world and say, love us for this. See, the reason why Esther's in the Bible is because if she was a hero, what we would have to say is, sleep your way to the top. No, because that conflicts with other scripture. Instead, we have to just say this in, in church. Hear me when I talk about engaging culture. It just describes it. Now, it is saying she shouldn't have done that. But, but in describing her, she is saying, God's saying this. I can use anybody at any time for my purposes. Even a morally loose woman who didn't stand up for her rights in the face of sexism and horrible atrocities to free my people. Yeah, I can use that. Watkins, what he says in his book of, of critical theory, uh, biblical critical theory, is this. Esther is not a hero or an idol or an anti-hero, but rather a signpost pointing us towards Christ. It's a, it's a guide. It's an arrow. It's a big, giant arrow with light bulbs flashing to Christ. Do you know why? It doesn't say culture is good, culture is bad. It just describes it. And then it says, I can use all you sinners to accomplish my kingdom. And that's the scandal of the kingdom. Many people think, well, what? <laughs> Pastor, I've been trying to be a good Christian. By the way, if, if you come to me and ask a question, you're like, Pastor, I've been trying to be a good Christian. Do you know what I'm going to say right away? Stop. And you'd be like, Pastor, that, that, that doesn't fit within the narrative. Yeah, it does. 
Because if you're trying to be a good Christian, do you know what you're saying to yourself? My good works gets me good things from God. Do you know how many times in Scripture that's the case? Zero. How do I know? Esther. She's not done one thing good, y'all. She hasn't spoken up against rancid racism and sexism. The Jews are being killed. She's being promoted because of her beauty. She's using her sexuality. The king has a harem. She's not speaking up against that. That's bad. She's sleeping over the top. That's bad. And God uses her. Do you see? It's not a promote how good you are, God. We have a God that says, I'm so good. Let me show you. Let me, I can use anything. <laughs> what do you have in your life? I can use it. That's what he's saying to us. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says this. Paul says, everything is permissible to me, not everything is edifying. Church, what the Bible says over and over and over again is this. Stop saying to yourself. Stop saying. Well, how, what's the fight that I have? against the culture that I'm in? What, what must I do to, to fight the culture or assimilate to it or be part of it or what speaks into what? Stop doing that. Instead, say this. Instead, say, what does God ask of me right now? That's what Esther said. Esther was presented the problem. She slept her way to the top. We're not even getting, I don't have time to get into Mordecai's sin on that, by the way. Mordecai is just as culpable. I don't have time. I wish I did. She gets into the courts and doesn't say, well, how did I get here? Is this good or bad? She, it just says, now that you're there, do this. Friends, instead of asking, how messed up am I? Don't, don't say that. Say this, because I'm here, what do I do now? Ah, that changes everything, doesn't it? That's what we should ask in regards to our engagement with the world around us. Second thing we need to understand is the difficulty of God's absence. I already hinted at you that the entirety of Esther does not mention God, nor Yahweh, nor Elohim, nothing. There's no, there's no uh, nickname for God. God's not mentioned. It just describes a historical situation. And many people have said, oh, this just proves, this just, again, the, the two opposed commentary spectrums that I go on. This just proves God is a God who gives us life and then goes hands off. He gives us life. He tells us what to do. He says, follow my instructions. Have fun. Wait a second. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list for you, again, Karen Jobes says the same thing. This is a literary device within Esther. The author is making it pointedly clear. Let me just walk down all the so-called coincidences in this story, if I may. If the king doesn't try to brag to all his male associates, if he doesn't ask his very beautiful wife to come parade scantily clad in front of them, if she doesn't deny it, if she doesn't become, if the king doesn't become upset at her and kick her out, if he doesn't put on a pageant, if Mordecai doesn't talk to Esther, if Esther doesn't get chosen, doesn't listen to the king's right-hand man on how to become more beautiful, if she isn't enslaved and taken into the court, if she isn't all of those things, if she doesn't go through the beauty treatment, if she doesn't have the one night with the king, none of this takes place. None of it. And you could say to yourself, well, that's a whole lot of coincidences. Yeah, that's true, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know, church. Maybe the older I get, the less I see coincidences in my life. And the more I see God's hand moving. Because the literary device that Karen Job says this is the amount of times the author goes out of their way to promote how God 
isn't there, and yet coincidences are always lining up over and over and over and over and over again, it's too much to bear. There's something going on here. There's a point. Even in our understanding of God's not there, he is. How do I know? Mordecai says something very, very important as he's talking to Esther. He says, Esther, the freedom of the Jews will come from somewhere else, if not you. You have an opportunity right now, right here, right now. We have a window to do something with it. Will you take it? See, that changes everything. The whole, ent whole entire story of Esther is changed when Mordecai says, freedom of the Jews is going to come elsewhere, Esther. Will you be part of what God's doing or not? Right now, because you're here. See, the problem we have with what I just said, the reason why it feels uncomfortable that I said God uses things and he's behind all things, and you say, ooh, so pastor, did God make this happen for my life or did he not make it happen for my life? Did he make Esther commit sin and sleep with the king when, before all that and be part of a harem? That's not very useful, is it? That's not very helpful. How about this? Again, like I said before, the helpful thing, the most important thing is not to say who gets glory, who gets, who gets blame, who gets punished, but just rather to say it is and God will use it, and God will make it, even in the time where he allows things to take place. Uh, my, this is, look, I, I, they didn't have books on this, so I can just say I watched the movie. I guess there are books, it's comics, but Marvel Universe does a great job of saying this, right? Marvel Universe comes off, Thanos gets all the rings, he's gonna kill everybody. Doctor Strange goes up infinity different directions and picks the place that is most useful for what they need to do to defeat Thanos and save the world. And horrible atrocities happen along the way, do they not? And we go, yes, but it was the best outcome for what was needed. So did Dr. Strange make it happen or did not? Did we choose? Did we have volition, have free will? Yes. See, I think we get far too caught up trying to understand what did God make me do and what did I do? Where's my free will? Where's God's sovereignty? I think we get caught up in that way too much. Can we just say this? Yes. You wouldn't do what you do without wanting to do it. That's true. You wouldn't do what you do without God having his hand behind it. That's true. How do those two work together? Talk to me in 20 years. All I know is that I see God's hand moving all around my life, and I also know that I choose to do things because I'm sinful and I'm broken and I choose to do things, and yet he's so good that he won't let my life go to tatters just because of me just like he didn't allow Esther's life to go to tatters just because of her. Silence does not mean God is not there. Silence means God is speaking to you just in a different way. The amount of times that I look at my children, I, um, my child's learning glower as a vocab word right now, and it means to glare. You know? And uh, my wife was asking him, do you know what glower means? And he goes, yeah, it's the thing that dad does sometimes to me. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I just silently kind of look down at him like this. I give him a glare. My silence is not me removing myself. My silence is allowing him to figure out what I am asking of him without directing him because I know I need to mature him. What if God's doing that to you? What if the most loving thing God can do is to say, all right, this is, this is your life. What do you want to do with it? And we say, I want control, I want power. And then you go headlong into a tree because you don't know how to drive and you're like, I shouldn't have been driving. And God's like, yeah, I'm glad you got that, good. 
And we say, well, that's very unloving of God. No, it's not. You know what's unloving of him? Forcing you to do something you don't want to do. That's unloving. God's silence does not mean, does not mean he is not there. Stop thinking to yourself, stop asking, where is God? And start thinking, because I am here, what does God want me to do? And start seeing, maybe my whole life is a culmination of all the decisions that I have made that God has been sovereign in with me together because I have free will, I have volition, but he is sovereign over my life. All things true. And I'm here and I just need to do what is required of me now. As I was preparing for this, the, the staff was going through uh, the study on this. Uh, and Pastor A was telling me that over in Africa, some of the sisters and brothers over there have this Esther verse nailed down. Because it says, maybe God has brought you for such a time as this. They're in horrible circumstances. Illness is, is going through their communities. In poverty, with horrible governments, with a life that you and I would look at and say, that is unjust, that is horrible, that is awful. And they say, but maybe God has brought me for such a time as this. Maybe God is moving in my life even when I can't see it. Maybe the things that have been given by God are actually good and glorious because he has his hand in everything that I'm doing regardless of what I feel and think at the moment. And maybe instead of saying, who got us here? Who's wrong? Who's unjust? All of those are good questions. And, and at COTB, we love justice. We actually ask all of our members to enact social justice in the world. Just like Mordecai asked Esther, if you don't do it, God's going to do it. Will you partner with him? And maybe you're here just as a time as this to actualize your platform for something better. Do you see? Stop asking, is God silent? And start saying, Maybe I don't hear him because I'm learning something. Maybe I don't see him because he's teaching. Maybe he's here the entire time because if I read scripture, it says he is sovereign. He is creating the stars. He is everywhere. As a matter of fact, scripture says he holds the cosmos in his hand. And if he stopped holding it in his hand, it would all fall apart. Uh, I mess with my science-minded people a lot with this. We have this thing called gravity that we've identified and called and things fall and let go of them and wait and all that good stuff. That's great. I know that's God's hand. We call it gravity. You're like, oh, you're anti-science. No, I didn't say that. I said I love science because we observe what God's doing. We call it gravity. I call it God's sovereignty. That if he decided to, things wouldn't drop down. They would start floating if he wanted to. Stop thinking as God's silent and start thinking he's here. How do I see him here? What, do, what is he asking me? Maybe for such a time as this, this is what I'm to do. Lastly, the difficulty of cost. Why we try to gain, and the question I ask, what if we lost in life? And what if that's glorious? And then also, why that question will never help us. I'm asking you the question, I'm going to answer it, and then I'm going to tell you why it never helps us. Let me, bear with me. There's a turn in Esther. It's one of my favorite verses in the entirety of the book. It's this aha moment that takes place. Mordecai's talking to her, he says, if you don't do this, somebody else will. If you don't help the Jews... God will bring justice and rain down from somebody else. Will you help the Jews? Because you may die in the process. And Esther turns and she looks and she, there's this verse. She says, okay, you don't understand. If I go to the king without being, without him presenting me, without him begging for me, without him inviting me, then I could die. Then, then I'm going to go to the king's court without permission and I will die. Do you understand that, Mordecai? And he goes, I do. Do you understand if you don't do it, your whole entire people will die? 
Do you see the guidepost already, y'all? Do you see the sign pointing to somebody greater than Esther? It's coming. She says this phrase. All right, Mordecai, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. And the entirety of the book flips right there. The second she stops thinking, I need to use my beauty to gain access to life. I need to use my intellect to gain platform in life. I need to use my power of persuasion to gain access to the things I want in life. I need to use my wealth to get status in this life. The second she stops saying, me, 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 and she starts saying, them, 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 everything changes. Everything changes when that takes place. Esther counts the cost and says, I'm willing to die to save others. I'm willing to not use my beauty for myself, but rather use my beauty for God's people. I'm not going to use my gifts for my own self-gain. I'm going to use my gifts for the, the church's self-gain, for my community self-gain, for my people's gain. She stopped thinking of self and started thinking about others, and she saved them. Now, here's my question to you. And, and this is the, I'm going to answer the question and then tell you why it never works. I could, if I wanted to, here's the sermon I could preach. So you need to use your platform to better other people's lives. And if you don't, you're a horrible person. Ah, I could preach that. I could say that of Esther. Because that's what Esther did. Esther said, I've counted the cost. I can't use my platform for myself. I need to use it for others. Okay, I'll do that. If I perish, I perish. And we could say, I could, I could sit up here and I could shame and guilt you. Trust me, I'm a dad. I could do it really well. I could shame and guilt you and force you into social justice. And I could force you into giving more. Uh, my, my wife and I have this phrase um, around the house. Uh, we'll, we'll say something to each other. And it's like a, we're just pontificating. We're just thinking about it. And then we'll say, just a thought for you as we pass around today's offering plate. Because at our church, what would happen when we were growing up is there was a pastor and, and they would read a like, really heartwarming story uh, or a children's director would get up and sing the song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Uh, and it's like, there's this one verse in it that says, and standing there on that uh, beautiful golden street, thousands of kids started coming up to me and thanking you for the service that you gave to them in Sunday school. And then afterwards, like, so do you want to sign up for Sunday school? And we're like, whoa. <laughs> I, I can say, we can, we can bludgeon you with guilt and shame and what to do proper and all of that. Do you know what happens then? Do you, know how many, do you know how long that lasts? Six months? Nine months? Maybe a year. Do you know what happens after that? You stop seeing the goodness of giving of yourself and you start saying, I can't keep costing myself because it's costing me too much. I can shame and guilt you for a little bit. But to get where Esther, Esther went from using others to get what she wants, and she changed to having what she wants, she changed being used towards the end of what she wants, meaning what she wants had to change. She couldn't look at her life and say, because I have beauty, because I have gifts, because I have platform, I'll use it for other people. Okay, fine, fine. No, 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 that's not what happened. See, Jesus says something very similar. Luke 14, 13, it says, it says that if you hold feasts, don't invite anybody that can give you. But when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Do you know why? Don't invite, all the, don't invite your boss over who can get you a promotion. 
Don't invite that social, the social influencer over so you can get more views. Don't be kind to people to get ahead in what you want. Give to those who can't give anything to you. Do you know why? Because it'll showcase that what you want is beauty of Christ more than self every single time. Every single time. Now look, I warned you all that I saw Les Mis a couple weeks ago, and I am sticking true to this. Jean Valjean has this incredible scene. <laughs> Told you, it's just all in my mind. I have the soundtrack on repeat, and just all the time on my phone. Jean Valjean has this understanding. He ran, he was a criminal from the law, and he breaks parole, and he runs away. And the parole officer finds him, and he says, you look familiar to me. And Jean Valjean says, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me. And he goes, yeah, you remind me of somebody that I arrested, broke parole. But you can't be him because I've already arrested that man. And he stands condemned right now on trial. And if he's tried, if we can, he's going to go to jail for the rest of his life. I've got him. But you remind me of him. And Jean Valjean says, oh, my gosh. Somebody else is in the line of fire. Somebody else is going to take the punishment that I rightly deserve. And he has this incredible song. It's called, Who Am I? And he says in the song, hundreds of workers depend on me. He's a factory owner. If he, if he steps up, if he says, no, it's actually I'm Jean Valjean, this man is innocent, hundreds of people that depend on him for livelihood are gone, are blown up. He takes the rap, they're out of a job. But if he stays silent, if he says, okay, those hundreds of people depend on me, and I like my life, I like being free, so I'm not going to say anything, that man goes to jail, his life is ruined. And Jean Valjean says, who am I? And he has this incredible, incredible, if I speak, I am condemned. If I stay silent, I am damned. Esther has the same exact problem. If I speak up, I'm condemned. The king can kill me. See what had happened? And when she gets invited into the harem, she had a couple of options. Either she could, be, she could be part of his court just to parade around, which would mean she can't take another husband. She doesn't have him as a husband. And she's just a, a picture, a plaque on the wall. And, and she gets paraded out and then goes back to her room. She's like Rapunzel uh, with a little bit of repeat, a reprieve now and then. The second thing that she could do is she could become a sexual partner for him, but not have kids. The third one, she could become a sexual partner, have kids with him, but not be queen, not be access to him. Or the last, she could be queen. Again, a lot of horridness, right? She says, if I go in there, what he could say is, I didn't invite you. You're, you're now spouseless. You're basically a widow for the rest of your life. You don't have relationship, you don't have intimacy, you don't have me, you don't have that. Get out of here. If I speak, I'm condemned. But if she stays silent, her people die. If I'm silent, I am damned. She has the same exact problem. And what does Jean Valjean say at the end? He says, who am I? I am Jean Valjean. And then 24601 is his identification number. The thing branded on him that he can prove this is me and not him. That man's innocent. I am guilty. Put it on me. See, friends, would you consider this? Would you consider that the best love in our lives, the best love, the most amazing love, the best friends, the best spouse, the best church member, the best community members, are those who replace you in the line of fire when you should so rightly deserve punishment, they take it from you. That's the best kind of love. Every Harry Potter book is written with that in mind. And no, Isaac, I haven't read the books, but I've seen the movies. I know. Lord of the Rings, the same thing. Star Wars, the same thing. Every movie has the beautiful, beautiful fact of atoning sacrifice on behalf of somebody else. As a matter of fact, Oscars are tonight. 
Uh, if Maverick would... Look, you guys should have seen it by now, okay? So I'm gonna spoil it for you. That's on you for not seeing it. <laughs> Maverick should have died in the movie. He doesn't. Shocker, I know. You see him at the end. They embrace on the air carrier in the previews. It's fine. He should have died. He should have atoned the sacrifice. He should have made right Goose dying for Goose's son. He should have, and he didn't. And you know what? The movie lacked something. The movie lacked something. It did. Because the best things in the world is atoning sacrifice on behalf of somebody else to take the pain and punishment for them when they are innocent. I could tell you, go do better, go be better. Use your status, use your job, use your wealth, use your beauty, use whatever God's given you to advance his kingdom. And it would be a gospel that is anti the Bible because that gospel says, do good things to get good things. Do you know how many times in scripture it says that ever? Not once. Do you know what it says? Because you've been gifted good things, go do good things. That's what it says. It's not a you are better, therefore, therefore you, you must do good to be better. It is, it's in verse. The implication is, is reversed. It says, because God's made you good, go do good. It's why the African sisters and brothers can say, maybe God's raised me for such a time as this. Because their lives are not like anything that should be counted as a blessing. Illness, poverty, bad government. Well, you need to rise above that, and then God will bless you. Or maybe God's blessed them for their station in life right now, and they're using it to gain his kingdom more. So here's my question to you. My question is not my statement. My application is not, go do better. That would fail. Here's my question to you. Do you find God's ways more beautiful than your ways? Do you find his redemption more beautiful than your redemption? Do you find his life more beautiful than your life? Because if you do, you'll sacrifice everything because your life is not your own, it's his anyway. Galatians 2.20 is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you don't find it beautiful, do you know what you'll do? You'll focus on yourself. Me, 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 all day long. My views, my way, my thoughts, my preferences, all day long. Look, we do something at COTB that as a white Anglo man, I'm very uncomfortable with. When we pray, we get together, and I'm used to prayer circles where it's like I have a list of five things, and I pray those five things, I say amen, we leave. And I get here, and we're like, okay, let's all pray in one voice. And I'm like, what are we doing? Everybody's just praying out loud right now. And for the first couple times, like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Okay, just put your head down and just like, that's my preference. Is it right or wrong? It's neither. I'm just describing it. Do you know what would happen if I said, my way is that we pray five things through, all the way through? The prayer that we have here is robust at COTB. And I go, let me join in with this and give up my preferences for something that's glorious. Because I see the beauty that happens in God's people praying together for his ends, and I see the community that's built. Do you see the same thing? Or do you think, no, it must be my way. I must have it my thoughts, my views, my service. And if I don't, I can't do it. That's fine. What if Esther said that? She wouldn't have joined in God's redemption story. And God would have said, that's fine. You don't have to. I'll do it elsewhere. Because God's ways are more beautiful than our ways, and he's working all things together for his glorious majesty. Will you join him in it? Do you want to join him in it? That's the better question. Don't force yourself to give up what you do. Ask the question, do I want to? Because if you want to, do you know what you'll start doing? Following his way regardless of what it asks you to do.
because you find his way more beautiful than your way. You find his platform more beautiful than your platform. So if he asks you, speak up in this platform you're given. Take your wealth that he's given you and give it away to the poor. Take the beauty that people follow you and influence them for the kingdom. You stop saying, but what about me? And start saying, what about them? Because he's more glorious than I could ever be. Do you see, friends? That's the application. Find God more beautiful than you find yourself. Don't do better. What up, Tate? <laughs> I love that little dude. Don't be better. Do better because you've been given the best by God, and that changes everything. Friends, pray with me. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.